is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, especially your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll help you record them. And this next story comes from a listener named Karen Cutler-Drectra, who listens to us on WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Here's Karen on her father, Jim. There are rare moments of happiness in a hospital, especially in the room of an 89-year-old man with dementia. But even there, once in a while, you are blessed with a golden memory that almost makes the experience worth it. I need to preface what happened by letting you in on a long-running family joke. When my sister and I were young, we'd always ask Dad what his favorite song was, even though we knew what the answer would be. The Kentucky Waltz, he would always reply. My father grew up in southern Illinois, near the Kentucky border, during the 1930s through the early 1950s, and his primary source of entertainment was the Grand Old Opry on the radio. In the late 1950s, my father moved to northeastern Wisconsin and married my mother, but brought his love for country music with him. So, for most of our young lives, we grew up listening to country music. However, the Kentucky Waltz was never heard on any of the country music stations here. There's no such thing as the Kentucky Waltz, we'd tease him. You must be thinking of the Tennessee Waltz. And then all of us would start singing at the top of our lungs, I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee Waltz. However, Dad kept insisting there was such a song as the Kentucky Waltz, but he couldn't remember the words or the melody. Since this was the early 1970s, before Google and the World Wide Web, Dad would ask various musicians, listen to country music radio stations, and look at every single song selection on jukeboxes, but never came across the Kentucky Waltz. Fast forward 45 years. Both my sister and I had long forgotten about teasing Dad on the existence of this song. He had had a few mini-strokes, and, according to various scans and tests, his brain had shrunk. We finally got him into an assisted living facility, but he couldn't understand why he was there and fought with everyone almost the entire time. Since my sister and her family lived in Las Vegas, I was the closest living sibling, so I ended up being the person who was called when he was acting up. I didn't mind at the beginning, but it started to be four to five times a week and I didn't want to resent my father for something he couldn't help, but I was beginning to. However, after a few months of living there, his health declined to the point of him being in the hospital, and my sister flew in to be by his bedside. Now, sitting next to my incoherent father, as he was babbling nonsense about people's names I didn't recognize, I had my nose buried deep into my cell phone playing some game to distract me on how heartbroken I was sitting there listening to him. 
I did finally recognize a couple of the names he whispered, of people he knew growing up in southern Illinois, though they were people I had never met and had long since passed away. At this particular moment, it was just Dad and me in the room. My sister had left to take a break and get us some coffee downstairs. Out of nowhere, he started to sing. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon My head snapped to attention. I thought, what is he singing? I never heard this song before. Suddenly, all those memories of car rides, which ended with us laughing at Dad about the song that didn't exist, came flooding into my brain. I grabbed my phone and went directly to YouTube. I entered the Kentucky Waltz in search, and there it was, staring me in the face, a video of the Osborne brothers singing the Kentucky Waltz. I turned up the volume, and Dad's eyes became more focused and moist. He started singing at the top of his lungs, all the words to the song, right along with the music. He didn't miss one word after 60 years of not hearing it. My sister came through the door and asked, What's going on? I can hear Dad singing all the way down the hall. Wait, Dad's singing? I quickly filled her in on what happened, and I immediately replayed the video, which, of course, Dad then started singing again. We both started to cry and laugh at the same time. Dad looked at both of us and said, Why are you guys laughing so hard? I told you this was my favorite song. We had a great afternoon with him. He was able to hold a conversation. We laughed. We cried. We created the last happy memory I have of him. He made somewhat of a turnaround and was able to be released to a memory center at a nursing home. Dad died three months later, but when I'm missing him or just feeling lonely for family, the gift of that song helps chase those sad feelings away. I've played the song so many times, I also know, know all the words by heart and sing at the top of my lungs. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon And I was a boy that was lucky been listening to Karen Cutler Drectra and her story about her father and a song. And Karen is a listener at WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Her story, her father's story, and the story of a song, one of our best so far, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story by Kent Nurburn, author of Letters to My Son, A Father's Wisdom on Manhood, Life, and Love, a book full of lessons for his son, should he not live to see him into manhood. Today's lesson is on strength. Strength. The other day, I saw a group of boys pushing against another boy outside a local store. The lone boy was gesturing as if he was going to hit back at his attackers, but you could see he was afraid. The others kept crowding him and taunting him and daring him to strike them. Then they were going to jump on him and beat him. Finally, an older man walked by and stopped them. The lone boy was free, but not safe. His attackers would be waiting for him on another day. I don't know what caused this confrontation. I'm sure it was nothing important. The wrong word, the wrong action but from it came a ritual as old as time, boys measuring themselves by their physical strength. It is a grotesque residue of our days as hunters and protectors when our physical prowess was a legitimate measure of our success as men. Now it is a caricature of all that we need to be. For ages we have lived with this biological imperative by which manhood has been defined as strength, strength to master others, strength to master our emotions, strength to master the world around us. Can we lift more, carry more, run faster, work longer than others? Then we are better men. Can we subdue another person physically? Then we are stronger men. Can we resist tears when we experience joy or sadness? Then we are truly men of strength. The world doesn't need this version of strength anymore. We need greatness of spirit more than we need greatness of physical strength. Let me tell you two simple stories. Perhaps you will see what I mean. Last week I was home alone. I had two tickets to a chamber orchestra concert to be held on Friday night. I started calling our friends. Those who might enjoy the concert were busy. Those who might be willing to go really didn't like classical music. The ticket hadn't cost much. I could have just thrown it away and gone alone. But something kept gnawing at me. For most of the morning I avoided the issue. I tried to ignore the ticket that sat innocently in my billfold. By noon it weighed about a thousand pounds. Finally, I got in my car and went over to the local nursing home. I went to the nurse's station on the second floor and found the head nurse. Is there some resident here who can walk a bit, likes music, and wouldn't mind going to a concert with a stranger, I asked. The nurses who were standing nearby looked at each other and began discussing various residents. So we decided on Florence. We went to her room. She was sitting in her wheelchair with her hands in her lap. She was probably 80, almost completely blind, and had heavy orthopedic shoes with straps and four-inch soles and laces up the side. This young man has tickets to a concert tonight, Florence, the nurse began. He wants to know if you'd like to go. I laughed at the nurse's phrasing. A nursing home is about the only place left where I'm likely to be called a young man, I said. Florence turned her heavy glasses toward me. Sure, she said. Let's go. I haven't had a date for a while. At 7.30, I arrived back at the nursing home. Florence was dressed and sitting in her wheelchair in the dark. She had on green cotton gloves and was clutching a purse. Everything went smoothly. Florence was able to get into my car. The wheelchair fit in the trunk, if just barely. The people in charge of the concert helped me get Florence into the auditorium and stayed with her while I found a place to park. Florence decided to stay in her wheelchair during the concert. I had an aisle seat and could stay next to her. Until the lights went down, we talked about people and places we both had in common. While the orchestra was tuning up, I read her the concert program. 
Vivaldi, Bach, Dvorak, and Beethoven. Then the music began. Lawrence sat silently, staring with empty eyes toward a stage she couldn't see and listening to music that she had not heard in years. There was a tiny smile on her lips. She never took off her gloves or let go of her purse. At the end of the concert, after the applause had died down, she asked if I would get her a copy of the program. I can't read it, she said, but I'd like to have one anyway. There's not much more to the story. I took her home. She thanked me. The nurses joked with her and wheeled her down the darkened hall. Her green gloves were resting on her purse, and under her purse, flat on her lap, was the program. Now the second story. One summer when I was just out of high school, I worked at a country club with a man named Haynes and his son, Calvert. Haynes was about 60 and always had a gentle smile on his face. Calvert was in his mid-twenties and wore a slicked-up pompadour and tinted glasses. Because they were black, they were required to eat downstairs in the boiler room area rather than in the employee lunch area upstairs near the kitchen. I used to bring my food down to eat with them. You don't have to do this, Haynes would say. You're not proving nothing. I've got to do it because I don't think what they're doing is right, I responded. Suit yourself, Haynes would say. Can't do you any harm. Calvert would just smile and shake his head. You're just messing yourself up over nothing, he would say as he pulled out the cribbage board. Day by day, I would watch Haynes and Calvert. I complained to the manager and complained to the other staff. Nothing was changed. Yet never did I see Haynes or Calvert show even the slightest hint of rancor or anger. They just ate their lunch, played cribbage, and went back to work cleaning the men's locker room in shiny shoes. At the end of the summer, I went off to college, but I continued to visit Haynes and Calvert when my travels took me past the country club. One day, I came across an article in our local newspaper. There had been an attempted burglary at a local country club, not the one where Haynes and Calvert worked, but one where I had caddied when I was younger. A black man had been shot and killed after breaking into the locker room with the help of a friend who worked there. The black man was Calvert. The policeman who had shot him was a man who had been several years ahead of me in high school. He had been a thug even then. Everyone had feared him because he beat up people with chains and tire irons. According to the article, the policeman had claimed that he shot in self-defense though the bullet had entered through Calvert's back, and Calvert had not been carrying a gun. Because there were no witnesses, no case was being filed against the officer. I was wild-eyed with anger and grief. I went over to see Haynes. I found him at his bench, shining shoes. Calvert wouldn't try to kill anybody, I said. I know that, Haynes answered, putting new laces in a white leather Oxford. I went to school with that cop, I continued. He was a thug then, and he's a thug now. He just shot Calvert in the back. I know that, Haynes responded. Well, aren't you going to do anything, I yelled. Haynes looked directly at me. His eyes were clear and sad. Calvert shouldn't have been there, he said. That was all. With all the pain he had known in his life, with all the injustice and unfairness that had surrounded Calvert right up to the moment of his last breath, Haynes refused to place blame elsewhere. I raged and fumed and choked back tears. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. A man had lost his son in an unjustified shooting by a thug in a uniform, and the justice system was turning a blind eye. How could a person be so passive in the face of such unfairness? Haynes just smiled at me and shook his head. You're angry, I know. I'm angry too, he said. That man killed my son. I want to see him behind bars, and I'm going to try to put him there. 
But that don't change nothing Calvert did. Calvert got shot because it was somewhere he didn't belong. Nothing I do is going to make what he did right. I stood dumbstruck before this man who had just lost his son. He was obviously filled with pain, but his sense of calm was profound. He did not mount arguments to justify his anger or a hope of revenge. He did not take rash action that would increase the cycle of suffering. He stood in his strength, contained in his grief, secure in the sense of honor with which he lived his life. In some men this would have seemed like passivity, but one look into the wisdom in Haynes' eyes was enough to tell me that this was not a man refusing to act out of fatalism or cowardice. He knew where the moral center of his being was, and he was as strong as a mountain. I could not have been that strong. I would have flown into a rage and set out to exact some horrible vengeance on Calvert's killer. To outsiders, I might have looked like a torrent of righteousness and a tower of strength, but I would not have been as strong as Haynes. Haynes, on the other hand, would never have been strong enough to go to that nursing home to ask a stranger to a concert. He accepted the harshness of life, and it was not his way to reach out to create happiness for others. He would have let the ticket go unused. He might have congratulated me for my act, but he never would have done it himself. He was not part of his strength. Two men, two moments noticed by almost no one, two very different ways of being strong. And great job as always to Monty, and thanks so much to Kent Nurburn for his contribution. He is the author of Letters to My Son, A Father's Wisdom on Manhood, Life, and Love. We spend a lot of time on fathers on this show and the boy crisis in this country because no one else is. And we've heard from you thanking us for doing it and we'll continue to do it. Boys need good models and to be good dads, we've got to know that good dads are out there and what strength and masculinity means in the 21st century. He knew where the center of his moral being was. He was as strong as a mountain and strength, as Kent said, comes in so many ways. A beautiful story, a story of love, a story of manhood, well, two stories of love and manhood. Kent Nurburn's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and this next one, well, I think you're going to love it. Between 1896 and 1899, the stampede to Dawson City in the Yukon was the last great gold rush in history. Scurvy, dysentery, frostbite, starvation, and worst of all, failure, stalked all who dared to arrive in Dawson. Here to tell the story of one of the bravest and most successful entrepreneurs of the Klondike gold rush is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. No woman figured more prominently on the Yukon and Alaskan frontiers than Belinda Mulroney. 
She gained international fame as the richest woman in the Klondike and made and lost more than one fortune. She became a character in novels and her dog the inspiration for Buck in The Call of the Wild. Linda Mulroney is born in Ireland in 1872, but she's reared partly in Pennsylvania when her father leaves Ireland to work in Scranton's coal mines. Here's Melanie Mayer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur. Belinda's early years in Ireland have a big effect on her personality. She doesn't know her father, John, because he leaves for America shortly after she's born. Then, after two years of bonding with her mother, Mary, Mary disappears too. Belinda is left in the care of her loving grandparents on the farm in Ireland, and she does have some young, rough-and-tumble uncle playmates who help her learn to stand up for herself and not whine. But losing her mother is traumatic. Who can she really trust? Who can she really love? This will be an issue the rest of her life. As a child, she turns to her trusty donkey. She calls him her twin because he was born on the same day she was. When Belinda is almost 13 years old, her parents send for her to come to America. She says, leaving my uncles was bad. Leaving my grandmother was worse. But leaving the donkey, I threw my arms around his neck and I cried and cried for hours after I left him. Belinda leaves home in 1893 to open a small restaurant at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Before the exposition closes, she has accumulated $8,000 in profits, something like a quarter million in today's money. Mulroney's next stop is California, where she opens an ice cream parlor in San Francisco. The money is rolling in again, but a fire destroys the parlor and leaves her broke. She ships aboard a coastal steamer, city of Topeka, as a stewardess. She quickly gains a reputation for resourcefulness, business acumen, quick wit, and spirit. When a snobbish passenger condescendingly tells her to black his boots, she tells him if she sees his boots outside his cabin door, she will throw a pitcher of water on them. When a baby has to be delivered, she does the job while the ship's captain stands discreetly outside the cabin door and reads instructions from a medical text. The captain is so impressed by Mulrooney, he soon puts her in charge of purchasing supplies for the ship. For her extra duties, she receives a 10% commission on the cost of the supplies. But so canny is Belinda that the captain still reckons he gets a bargain. When news of the gold strike in the Klondike region of the Yukon reaches the Alaskan coast during the spring of 1897, Mulrooney has saved $5,000. She says goodbye to the captain and uses her money to buy all the cotton goods and hot water bottles she can find. With the help of hired hands, she packs her goods from the port of Dyee over a treacherous Chilkoot Pass and then floats on a raft hundreds of miles down the Yukon River to Dawson, a mining camp that is fast becoming the great boomtown of the far north. Stepping ashore, Mulrooney throws the last coin in her pocket into the river and exclaims, never again will I need such small change. She's right, 
She sells her cotton goods and hot water bottles on Dawson's Main Street at a 600% profit. Here's Charlotte Gray, author of Gold Diggers, Striking It Rich in the Klondike. In her packing, she has these long aluminum tubes, and she won't tell anybody what's in them. She gets to Dawson. Within six weeks, she has a restaurant going, she is supplying men with outfits, and she has a construction business going. Because what was in those aluminum tubes was incredibly wonderful silk underwear, lingerie, night dresses. And she knew that there were women in Dawson and she could sell this stuff to them at a huge profit. She opens a diner that's crowded with men daily and builds cabins that are sold before they are finished. Here's Melanie Mayer. Belinda reaches Dawson in the early summer of 1897 when she's 25 years old. She's been clever enough to get there before most of the stampede of gold seekers, but she knows they're coming. So she explains, I started buying up all the small boats and rafts that were arriving, hired a crew of young fellows who had nothing to do. They took apart the boats, salvaging the lumber and nails. I had them build cabins. I wasn't thinking of the money I'd make. We just had to shoulder those people. But of course, Belinda does make money from those cabins, and even old-timers who've been mining in the Klondike for a while end up wanting a cabin for when they come into town. One old-timer, Swiftwater Bill Gates, comes into Dawson with a load of gold. He's so eager to buy one of Belinda's cabins, he pays $6,500 for it. In today's money, that's like $117,000. Mulroney takes another gamble and opens a hotel and store in the heart of the mines, where El Dorado Creek pours into Bonanza Creek. Here again is Charlotte Gray. It's the city of whiskey, women, and gold. Everything was paid for in nuggets and gold flakes and every commercial establishment had a set of scales on its uh, counter. By the fall of 97, her Grand Forks Hotel is open. Prices for meal and lodging, and for whiskey and cigars, are the highest in the Yukon. No matter. Sourdoughs throw gold nuggets onto the Grand Forks bar. Mulroney is also in a location to get the first word on every new claim. By winter, She's an investor in several valuable mining properties. Putting a hotel 15 miles from Dawson at the junction of Bonanza and El Dorado Creeks, the Forks, isn't everybody's notion of a good idea. One old timer explains, boys, there's a new woman up to the Forks with a bit of an Irish brogue and the tongue of a lawyer that's going to show us old mossbacks how to get rich. Hanged if she ain't got so much money to lose that she's gonna build a two-story hotel bigger than any in Dawson, right up here on the creeks. But that's Belinda's genius. She can see possibilities where others see only muck. And she has great energy and self-confidence, even when only 25 years old. She builds the Grand Forks Hotel using construction skills she learned at the Chicago World's Fair five years earlier. And the Grand Forks Hotel is a huge success, not only as a hotel, but also as a restaurant, a bank, 
and a social center during the long, bitterly cold nights of the Yukon winter. And when we come back, we'll hear more of Belinda Mulrooney's story, The Richest Woman in the Klondike. And by the way, to hear more of Roger McGrath's work, go to ouramericannetwork.org. My goodness, he's done a dozen or so more of these terrific frontier stories. America not reimagined, but America's story simply retold. Our American Stories continues after these commercial messages. more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we return to Roger McGrath and the story of Klondike Gold Strike Queen Belinda Mulrooney. When a boat loaded with supplies is wrecked on a sandbar in the Yukon River, Belinda goes into partnership with Alex MacDonald to salvage the cargo. Big Alex stands over six foot seven and weighs nearly 300 pounds. He began his stay in the far north as a laborer and worked his way up to managing an Alaskan trading company. Through the acquisition of one mine after another, he is becoming a multimillionaire. He will soon be known as the king of the Klondike. Mulrooney and MacDonald have a crew salvage the cargo, but MacDonald has the goods divided before Mulrooney arrives. MacDonald takes crates full of foodstuffs for himself and leaves cases of whiskey and boxes of rubber boots for Mulrooney. With winter approaching and starvation a real possibility, foodstuffs will be at a premium. You'll pay through the nose for this, Belinda tells Big Alex. Here again is Melanie Mayer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney, Klondike and Alaska Entrepreneur. You can understand Belinda's relation to Alex MacDonald if you think of her rough and tumble days with her uncles in Ireland. They like each other, but they're competitive, very competitive. Their so-called practical jokes are tricks where the jokester sets up the other person to be duped. But Belinda is determined to not be anybody's victim. Early in the spring of 1898, there is an unusual heat wave causing a sudden thaw. The rapidly melting snow and ice floods the Klondike country. Work in the mines is impossible without rubber boots. None other than Big Alex arrives at Mulroney's pleading for rubber boots for his men. Belinda sells the boots all right, but makes him pay $30 a pair, the equivalent of $900 in today's money. Mulroney uses the profits to build the Fairview Hotel on Dawson's Main Street during the spring and summer. Nearly everything that goes into the Fairview has to be freighted from the Port of Skagway. Belinda makes the long and dangerous journey to the Alaskan coast to personally supervise the operation. She arrives there only to learn that Joe Brooks, the packer she has hired, has moved her goods just two miles up the trail before dumping the cargo when getting a better offer to transport whiskey for Bill McPhee. Joe Brooks is now about to learn what Big Alex learned 
Don't cross Belinda Mulrooney. Belinda marches to the Skagway Wars and hires the roughest men she can find. Legend says she instigates a fight among them and makes the last man standing her foreman. Whether that's true, she's soon leading these men up the trail. They catch up with Joe Brooks and his crew and beat him and his men into submission. Belinda mounts Joe Brooks' own horse and leads the pack train over White Pass and down to boats waiting on the Yukon. The Fairview Hotel opens by the end of summer 1898. It's the most elegant hotel in the far north. It has 22 steam-heated rooms, electric lights, Turkish steam baths, and dining tables spread with fine linen and set with sterling silver and bone china. Cut-glass chandeliers hang from the ceilings, and an orchestra plays in the lobby. The Fairview is a cash cow from the day it opens. During its first 24 hours of operation, the bar alone takes in $6,000, something like $180,000 today. By the fall of 98, Belinda is known internationally. Scribner's Magazine calls her the richest woman of the Klondike, and others christen her the Queen of Grand Forks. She becomes a character in the novels of James Oliver Curwood and her dog, Nero becomes immortalized as Buck in Jack London's The Call of the Wild. Here again is Charlotte Gray, author of Gold Diggers, striking it rich in the Klondike. Jack London went up there. He was an unpublished writer. His gold was all the stories he'd picked up in the bars. And two years after he got out of the North, he was the best paid, best known short story writer in North America. They're great stories, and so they really just light people's imagination up. Here's Melanie Mayer. Belinda St. Bernard Nero is just a big pup when she adopts him in Dawson, and he immediately captures her heart. He grows to be as big as she is, and Nero goes everywhere with Belinda, on the trails, into her cabins or hotel, onto boats, when there's snow on the ground, he proudly pulls her in a sleigh basket. He is her best friend. One day during the spring thaw, they're coming back to Dawson loaded with gold taken in at the Grand Forks Hotel. Belinda has a heavy backpack of it. Nero carries two bags of gold across his back like a saddle. They come to a place where they have to cross Bonanza Creek on a log, so Belinda goes first. But when Nero tries to follow, he slips and falls into the icy, rushing water. His load of gold is so heavy, he sinks to the bottom. He can't swim, can only sometimes bob his head out of the freezing water for a gasp of air. Holding onto the tree with one hand, with the other, she manages to grab Nero's collar on one of his bobs for air. But now, they're in a dangerous fix. The tree is swaying. Belinda can't lift Nero out. He's too big and the gold makes him even heavier. All she can do is keep his head above the water and hope that she can keep hanging onto the tree. Eventually, some miners come along. One miner starts to climb out on the tree with Belinda in an attempt to reach Nero, but then the tree abruptly sags. Both Belinda and the miner are dumped into the water with Nero. Eventually, with everyone hauling and pushing, 
Nero, Belinda, and the helpful miner are rescued. Once his packs are off, Nero shakes off the excess water and is set to go again. Belinda, of course, is soaked, and with no dry clothes on hand, she has a very cold hike into Dawson. Yes, Nero is Belinda's best friend in the Klondike. Even decades later, in 1962, when interviewed on her 90th birthday, tears come to Belinda's eyes when she remembers her faithful, beloved Nero. In 1900, Belinda Mulroney marries Charles Eugene Charbonneau, purportedly a French count with estates in Europe. He is bold, dashing, and handsome, but French-Canadian rather than French, and no count of any kind. Before Belinda learns the truth, the couple honeymoons in Europe as the Count and Countess. Upon their return to the Klondike, Belinda becomes the manager of the Gold Run Mining Company. When she takes control of the company, it's bleeding red. Within 18 months, she has it making millions again. Her husband, meanwhile, is losing millions of Belinda's money in European business ventures. She divorces him in 1906. Through hard work and daring gambles, Belinda recovers much of her fortune. One of her new businesses is the Dome City Bank of Alaska. When an investor accuses one of Belinda's sisters of embezzling money from the bank, Belinda collars the man and horsewhips him until, in the words of the Fairbanks Times, he cried like a baby. Embarrassed, the man later claims Belinda had two men help her. I needed no help, she replies. Twenty friends, all old sourdoughs of Alaska, begged to be allowed to take the work off my hands. But it was a family affair, and I attended to it to the best of my ability. A blackmailer simply received a little Alaska justice. Sue Taylor, a woman who plays the role of Belinda Mulroney for visiting tourists at the Palace Grand Theater in Dawson City, shares what brought her to the area and explains why people are still drawn to Dawson to this very day. Belinda Mulroney was, she's a fabulous character and I feel very honored to play her. Every time they told her she couldn't do something, she went and did it even bigger and better than they said she couldn't do. And uh, that's the spirit that's still here. Oh, you bet. So I came up here and thought I'd see what happened and moved into a tent. Town was full of mud. Bought a brand new pair of rubber boots and that was my first day. Walked down to the Westminster Hotel. The boyfriend, he stayed outside. He was afraid to go in. I went inside and with my bright, shiny boots on and these big, hairy guys took one look at my boots, picked me up by my boots, shook me until I fell out of it. Then they poured the jug of beer into the gumboot and they passed it all around. And when it got to me, I had a drink too and, and I guess I was just accepted. I liked it fine. Uh, my boyfriend never did come in. He left town very quickly. But I stayed. It's just this place has a calling for people who just want to do, be themselves and be who they want to be, be who they are. Belinda Mulroney eventually leaves the far north and builds a grand estate near Yakima, Washington. It becomes known as the Charbonneau Castle and is today a historical landmark. She lives there until shortly before her death at the age of 95 in 1967, making her the last of the legends of the Klondike Gold Rush to die. And what a story. Great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, 
And so much of his work, all of his work, can be heard at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Also, a special thanks to Melanie Meyer, author of Staking Her Claim, The Life of Belinda Mulrooney. And we rely on so many different historians and experts to do our storytelling. And thanks to all of you for helping. Belinda Mulrooney's story, The Richest Woman in the Klondike, here on Our American Story. Get more at OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. From the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now we bring you the story of Dr. George Valdez. He's the author of Narco Mindset, the life principles that a cocaine drug lord learned on his journey to find meaning in his life. His story is one of redemption, but it also covers some mature content. The listener discretion is advised. You know, what's really interesting about my life is that a lot of times in life we believe that only bad things happen to uh, bad kids. No one can ever imagine that good things can happen to good kids. You know, my story is very, very different. My story starts when I was a young boy in Cuba. My parents were a very wealthy family. My dad was a a man of tremendous integrity. Uh, Didn't talk to him very, very much. My mother was everything in our lives. And my mother was the one that wanted to leave Cuba. She did not want her children. She was very religious. Did not want her children to grow up in a home that just did not, was not allowed to worship God because it was a communist country. And my father, in the other end, he really just thought that communism was not going to affect him. Uh, and he was 40 years old, did not want to come to the United States. And uh, my mother said, well, if you don't want to come, that's fine, but I'm not going to raise my children here. My mother applied to leave Cuba when, I guess in 1962, right after the revolution, which would have made me six years old. We did not get to leave till October 11th, 1966. And I tell them my life, I look at it in three very traumatic or three shifts of my life. Uh, where different uh, occurrences happened that would define the next decade of my life. And the first one was w- being waked up in the morning early, and my mother saying, get up, get up. We're leaving Cuba, and I'm, I mean, I'm in shock. I'm 10 years old, my brother's 9, my sister is 5, and I had no idea, so I went to pack some toys, and my mother's like, no, 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 only the clothes on your back. So as I was going towards the airport, and I'm like, Mom, where are we going? She said, we're going to Miami. Uh, we're going to be with your relatives. And I'm like, really, I mean, constantly like looking and like wondering. Everything is going through my head. Why am I leaving my toys? Why am I leaving my friends? Why are we leaving our relatives? We get to the airport as we are waiting for our name to be called out. Then all of a sudden, uh, towards the end of just about everybody had boarded, uh, I see my mother and my father crying. And my mother coming to me. And my father, all I could hear him say was, I'm not going, I'm not going. I could not understand what he meant by that. But my mother grabbed my hand, I was 10, 
And uh, she put it with my brother and my sister, and she looked at me and said, Jorge, you take your brother and sister to Miami. I will meet you there one day. And at that moment in time, my father, who was just crying and just shaking his head, and I'm walking towards the airplane, and I was in, a, in, in, in complete shock. I mean, like, my whole world had shattered. What, what was happening to me? What, why am I, where am I going? Who am I going to go see? Why is my mom and dad staying behind? Well, my dad ended up joining us by God's grace at the last minute. And we arrived in Miami, and, you know, we used to live in a house that was one square block in Cuba. We had cars. We had color television in our house. And we went to live with uh, some relatives, and it was a total of 11 of us, and we went to sleep in the floor. One bedroom, one bathroom, and 11 of us had to go to work or go to school. And at that moment in time, I made a decision in my life, and the decision was, you know, there's no God in the world. God is whoever I make him out to be. My mother's crazy. Fidel was right when he said that God was only for weak people that need a meaning for their lives. But still, you know, I ended up doing things uh, with tremendous integrity. At the age of 17, I became the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank. I was a straight-A student. And I went to school at University of Miami and, uh, and worked at the Federal Reserve Bank full-time. And I did that for almost four years. And literally, never had seen drugs in my life, never drank alcohol. I had a girlfriend that I would see her for two hours on Saturday night and about four hours on uh, Sunday, and that would be about it. I was just set. My life was defined because my life was going to be, I was going to reach the American dream. And the American dream was really defined to me two days after I came from Cuba. When I saw my cousin one day come, and he had this gorgeous uh, candy apple red GTO with uh, a white interior inside, and he had only been there about a year before us. And I began to say to myself, oh my God, if my cousin, who just came from Cuba a year ago, has this beautiful car, the day I have a car like this, I'll be somebody. Because at that time I met what I call the pseudo-American dream. That American dream that told me, George, whenever you have beautiful cars, whenever you have a beautiful woman, whenever you have mansions and cars and planes and all those great things, you'll be somebody. And I was so focused on being that somebody that I really did not think about nothing else but that goal in my mind. Time passed, and I'm about to graduate from University of Miami. My accounting professor at that time, he came up to me and said, George, I want you to come work for me. I just moved from Miami. I did not speak Spanish. You can have secretary, office, all those wonderful things that I thought that one day I would have when I own my own business. And all you have to do is do my Spanish clients for me. And to me, it was the, probably the first evidence that there was a God in this world. So I went to work for him. I left the Federal Reserve Bank. You know, my father, again, very conservative, did not want me to leave. Uh, he thought I had a tremendous career. And my mother, the other way, was different. My mother was, you're never going to be somebody working for somebody, so do whatever you have to do, son. And so she encouraged me. And I went to work for that man, and I remember going the first I mean, the first job I had was a little grocery store in Miami. I would say it was about 25 feet wide by 40 feet long. Uh, in the middle, just really, really Cuban uh, land, I called it at that time. And uh, I went to work for him. It's called La Puerta del Sol. And the first day that I went in there, he had a little office set up in the back, a little room in the back of the store. And I go there, and the first thing that I see is a bag. And I begin to count the money. And it was over $100,000. Now imagine, this is 1976 when you could buy a gorgeous home in Miami for $25,000. So I looked at that and I was like, 
Wow, amazing that a little place like this is making so much money. And when we come back, we're going to continue the story of Dr. George Valdez. And already, it's quite different than the normal story we hear on Our American Story. Seeing his mother and father crying at the airport, the sudden and rapid change in his life, and his struggle now to live his own version of the American dream. And that's all of our that's all of our struggle. We all make choices. And my goodness, you're about to hear some choices George makes coming up next here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of George Valdez, author of Narco Mindset. When we last left off, he was telling us about the time he found a bag with over 100000 in cash while working for some shady characters. Let's continue. I mean, apparently this is definitely not what they taught us at school. So I let it pass and I did my books. I set up the journals. I did all that stuff that an accountant does. Come back the next Monday. And when I came back the next Monday, I find another bag. And the bag has 75000 this time. I looked around the store. I looked at all the receipts the guy had bought. It didn't add up to about $500. And I'm like, man, how the heck is this guy turning this $500 into so much income? I mean, I was that naive. Third week, it was just the, the, where, the road, where the rover met the road. I come in again, and this time was like $110,000, $120,000. And I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And again, at the same time, nothing wrong would cross my mind. So I called him in. I said, hey, Albro, let me ask you a question. You know, in accounting, there's a very basic formula. You buy a dollar worth of product, and if you sell it for $3, you have $2 profit. If you sell it for $4, you have $3 profit. I mean, this guy couldn't even read or write. I said, but we have a problem here. Oh, the entire month, all you've bought is about $800. And so far, I'm counting almost $300,000. And literally, he just started laughing in my face. He said, George, what do you think? We're drug dealers. And you can imagine how shocked I was. And I thought, I was shocked for about 10 seconds. I was shocked for about 10 seconds because that's how quickly I was able to convince myself, hey, George, don't get excited. You're an accountant. You were trained to count money. As long as you don't break the law and do nothing wrong, you're fine. And then, again, I remember during this time, there was no money laundry laws. So uh, he looked at me and he said, look, we have currency restrictions in Colombia. We can't take our money there. So we know that you work for the federal government. Do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? I looked at him and said, of course I know how to open foreign bank accounts. You know, I worked in the accounting department. and I was very close with the auditing department. And I said, uh, he said, well, how much does it cost? And so now... I knew that you could open a foreign bank account, and I had heard that it cost you about $700 in Grand Cayman, anywhere between five and $700. But I didn't want to get involved in any of this because this was just way beyond my means. I mean, I was the ultimate nerd. All I ever did is study and work. I knew nothing about life. I knew nothing about drugs. I knew nothing about big business. And they're like, uh, well, can you open three bo- accounts for us? And I'm like, sure. No, not a problem. 
And of course, I'm going to give them, I'm going to go ahead and give them this really stupid offer. And with that offer, they're just going to go ahead and leave me alone. So I go ahead and I said, $10,000 a piece. Now, remember, I knew that all they cost is about, you know, 700 bucks. So I knew for sure that they would tell me, hey, forget about it. There's nothing here to it. So uh, just go to hell. Well, they looked at me and said, can you open three? And so I'm trying to, you know, portray the big guy. That, I mean, a big, I, I work for the government after all, so I'm a big shot. And I'm like, not a problem. It'll probably take me a couple of weeks. Well, you know, I think it's one of the, the gravest mistakes in my life because I've looked at life. I've never looked at life that I can't do something. I always thought, well, if someone's done it, I can do it too. But, uh, and that was the wrong mindset. Because all of a sudden, here they give me, right up front, $30,000. I had never seen money like that in my life. I mean, I made, at that time, I think minimum wage was like $1.20, and I was making three twenty three twenty five an hour at the Federal Reserve Bank. All of a sudden, I see $30,000 in my pocket. Well, it didn't take me long to make a connection. Head out to Grand Cayman, open uh, those bank accounts, and my world began to change. And that's something that I talk about crossing lines in life. You know, when we cross a line in life, it's just so easy to cross that little thin line. But then it becomes so hard. But once we cross that thin line one time, then it just becomes easier and easier. And all of a sudden, I was opening foreign bank accounts to people managing millions and millions of dollars. You know, my world started to drastically change. And then came the second shift in my life. I went to a party, and I saw this federal judge that would give people hundreds of years for any drug offense, snorting cocaine. And I said to myself, you know what, George? There is no God in this world, and there's definitely no morals. So whatever you do is fine. And then that's where my life just drastically starts to spin out of control. But then again, at the same time, I'm saying to myself, well, I'm making a lot of money. I, I just bought a brand new Mercedes. Uh, I'm going to buy my parents a house. And I'm, again, I'm not doing anything wrong. And it's very important to go back to that era in the, the mid-70s, cocaine was not even in the DEA radar. It was not even a thing. It was something that was for the rich and famous. And I began to justify my actions, as we all do whenever we do something that just deep down inside we know is quite not right. So I began to justify my action by saying, listen, if rich people want to do this stuff, that's their problem. At least I'm not involved with the drug part. I'm just involved with the money. And I, and I went out like that. Well, next thing they did is they asked me to, if I was interested in opening a, a banana uh, import company. Little did I know that the least thing they were thinking about importing was bananas. And I said, sure. I said, uh, you know, if, I, if you want me to head, be the president of the company, if you want me to do the whole feasibility study and, and the whole infrastructure, then I got to be the president. And it was four people. It was four of them. And these four gentlemen were the group that originally, the original group that would one day go on and become the Medellin drug cartel. And they were different, though. There were uh, Manuel, who was the head of the cartel at that time, was a gentleman. He was a, a man that went to mass every day. He had uh, enormous businesses. He was worth hundreds of millions of dollars in 1976 on coal mines, emerald mines. And I started doing all the infrastructure for the company. And then I went all over Europe to look for a, uh, a ship that uh, we called it a landing ship because it had to be something that would have low draft so that it would go in uh, low waters. Because all along, all they cared about was not importing bananas. They couldn't give a darn if we threw all the bananas in the ocean. What they wanted to do was import cocaine. 
I had no idea, totally clueless. But we went on like that, and as I started to get to know these people, they started to say to me, you know what, George, we want you to handle all our operations in the United States. Now imagine, here's a 20-year-old kid, I have braces, I've never, never crossed any, I've never done anything wrong in my life, I had a perfect record, I didn't even have a speeding ticket. All the alcohol in my life did not even fit in a teacup. Being asked to handle all drug operations in the United States for the most powerful criminal organization in the world at this time. No way. There was just no way that I even thought would cross my mind. But they kept that in a very subtle way, in a subtle way, till one day I came up with this brilliant idea. So I'm going to say to them, I said, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. Next time that they ask me if I want to do that, I'm going to say, okay, I'll do it. But here's the deal. You guys put up all the money, and I want equal parts. In other words, you're four, now we're going to be five. No doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind that they would tell me to just go to hell because there's no way in the world this mid-40s, multi-millionaires, uh, very, very powerful people would go ahead and let a 20-year-old punk kid dictate to him that he's going to be equal partners with them and they got to put up 20% of his money, which at that time would have been, each load was costing three, four $400,000 per person to bring in. So I left. They told me, well, we'll think about it. And I went back to my hotel, and I'm saying, well, you know what? That's wonderful. Finally got rid of the headache. Not a problem. And I go on. And I went, went to bed, and I was just, I had this amazing feeling of relief. In the morning, when I went to, uh, to go to the airport, they sent the driver for me. And the driver said, we got to stop at uh, Manuel's office because he wants to talk to you. So I'm like, okay, uh, we're going to stop over there and, uh, and see what he wants. So when I go over there, I'm like, yeah, Manuel, is, is there anything that you need? Hold on one second. Let me cut that out. This dog started barking here for a second. So when I went to uh, meet Manuel in the morning, he's like, uh, George, come in. So I went in there and he says to me, uh, you know what? We'll accept. You go ahead and handle all our operations for us. We'll make you equal partners. We need someone like you in the United States. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with these freaking people? I'm 20 years old. What do you mean they need somebody like me? I don't even know what the hell cocaine looks like. I, I mean, like, handle operation? What the, What does that mean? I mean, who brings it in? Who takes it to where? Who buys this? How the hell does this? And then, what happens with the money? Because at the end, later on in life, we find out that the easiest thing was bringing it in. The easiest thing was selling it. The hardest thing is what we do with hundreds of millions of dollars in the, in the 70s. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable life story. The first shift in his life, that separation from his home space, Cuba, his home nation, and the separation of his parents, and questioning God and life in general. And the second big shift, oh my goodness, seeing a federal judge snorting cocaine and whatever doubt he had about a God existing or any sense of right or wrong out the window for this young man. And then to be asked by a drug cartel to handle operations in the entire United States at the age of 20. Well, to hear more about this great story, tune in to Our American Stories. George Valdez's story continues after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories and the story of George Valdez. When we left off last, young George was being asked to run a major drug cartel while in his early 20s. And not only was he in way over his head, he was also good at what he was doing, which could be seen as a good thing or a bad thing. Let's continue. Now I'm petrified. I mean, I'm so scared right now that I'm like, there's no way in the world I can tell these people no. So I'm like, fine. Uh, let me go take care of the, uh, we're remodeling this uh, ship in California. I said, let me take care of the ship. And once I, we've done that, I'll come back or we'll meet in Miami and we can go over what exactly it is that you all need. So when I go to California, all along there, the gentleman I had hired to do the refrigeration had kept asking me, hey, you know what? I know that your boat is for cocaine. And I'm like, no, you're crazy. How, how would this boat be to bring in cocaine when it's in my name? Am I that stupid? You know, he and I got pretty friendly because I used to play baseball really well. And he had a softball team. And so we became really, really good friends. And he just kept kidding me about that. So when all of a sudden I find myself that I'm going to be head of all operations, I'm like, you know what? This guy wants cocaine in California, but let me do the same thing. Let me make him a stupid offer. When he says no, then I can come back to the manual and say, look, I'd like to help you guys out, but I don't have a buyer. I don't know anything. So I go to Mel and I say, hey, Mel, you know, all this time you've been harassing me about the boat being cocaine. And, you know, now that we're close friends, let me tell you, it is, man. In the meantime, I had found out that Cocaine in Miami cost 40000 It was $20,000 in Colombia at that time, and it cost about 5000 to bring it to the U.S., Twenty-five, and wholesale will sell about $42,000, dollars uh, a kilo. So I go up to Mel and I say, hey, Mel, I want to come clean with you. We are drug dealers, but we only sell the best. And I mean, I'm acting like you think that was Scarface at this time. And he's like, uh, oh, man, I knew it all along. I knew it all along. Uh, how many can you sell me? I said, how many do you want? He said, well, how much? I said, 70,000. I mean, I, it took an act of God for me to not pee in my pants from laughing when I came up with that number because it was like, it's 43, 44. I'm telling this guy like 26, I, I could have said 80. I could have said anything. It just came out the top of my head. And he's like, man, that's, that's a lot of money. I said, exactly. But I told you that we only handle the best quality ever. So he said, well, let me get with my people. It wasn't about four hours later, he says, We'll buy five kilos. And I'm like, I'm like, well, I don't know if I can supply that little. And I'm like, man, at that night, I couldn't even go to bed. I was just in such turmoil. I'm either going to get killed by the buyers or I'm going to get killed by the sellers or somebody's going to kill me. But as a matter of fact, I didn't believe in God at that time, but I was sort of like, Jesus, just go ahead and kill me right now because, you know, man, man, take away the misery. <laughs> Lo and behold, I go to Miami and one of their uh, representatives from that grocery store uh, his name was Jaime, and I'm like, Jaime, I got this problem. This guy already wants to buy three kilos, and uh, now they want to put me in charge of all of this operation. I mean, like, I don't know what the hell to do. He said, oh, that's easy, man. He wants three kilos. We'll get him to California. Sell it to him. How much? I said, 70. He said, 70? Are you crazy? You sure they're going to pay and not rip you off? I said, I have no idea. I said, I said, man, I've never sold a candy bar in my life. How the hell do I know if they're going to pay me or not? He said, man, you better act like you can kill each and every one of them, because if not... Somebody's going to kill you. I mean, I just couldn't sleep for a week. They took the three kilos. I made uh, $60,000. And then I came back, and within six months, I was U.S. head of all operations, and I was importing over 85% of all the cocaine that came into America. 
And uh, I was 21 years old, and I was making between a million and $3 million a month. Now, it's very, very important to realize that's 1977 money, you know, which is a, a little bit different than in today's money. But, you know, the interesting thing for me was that now I knew I was going to be happy. Now I just knew that my world would change and that I would be somebody, that I'm somebody important. Uh, I mean, after all, now all our clients were Hollywood celebrity, movie stars. Uh, cocaine was not even in the DEA radar during this time, so I was not even feeling guilty about doing anything wrong. And I lived the life. I had my own. I had the business. I had the office. I went to the to my office every morning at eight o'clock, like I'd done all my life. I put on my suit, and I left the office at six o'clock. And I ran the biggest empire and created the biggest drug empire in, in America, and uh, created the most intricate financial web that there was. But why was I miserable? Why was it that now, for example, I remember one time I got a phone call and like, George, the Corvette convertible just came out. And I mean, I was like so excited. It was like, uh, you know, it was like if it was by bar mitzvah or my baptism. And I put on a suit. I put on cologne. I told one of my bodyguards, I said, hey, load up a briefcase with money. We're going to go find my happiness. And we get to a dealer. And also when I get to a dealer, I see that. They got three colors, and I'm like, what the heck? If my joy is dependent upon one of these colors, and I picked the wrong one, how am I going to be happy? So I did what any accountant would do. I just bought one of each color. And when people would say, well, what's the hardest thing you do every day, Joe? I said, well, of course, the hardest decision I make in the morning is what damn car I'm going to drive. And I looked around one day, and I had a million dollars worth of cars. And I just couldn't understand why I was not happy. Well, I realized then I was married to one woman. And I'm like, well, I'm a good Cuban guy, so... How can a Cuban guy be just happy with one woman? And I started dating all the most beautiful supermodels in America, and I hated them all. And could not understand why, all of a sudden, I hated women, treated them the way I did. I mean, I did not uh, abuse them or anything like that, but just, to me, they were just so insignificant. When I adored my mother, who was my entire life, and I had the utmost respect in this world, just could not understand any of that. And every day in my life, I was miserable. And I, and I tell people, you know, everybody in the world wanted to be like George Valdez. You know, I was considered the most powerful person, well, one of the most powerful in America at that time, and no one even knew that I existed. But I tell people every day of my life, I would wake I would lay down in my bed, I look at the ceiling, did not like what I see. Wake up in the morning, see the mirror, just did not like what I see. Then one of my uh, associates comes up to me and says, we have an opportunity. Uh, the government of Bolivia wants to make a deal with you. So I was in Colombia with the pilots, and I showed them where the airstrip was, and I was going to fly back to Nicaragua because I had a meeting with General Somoza where we were going to bring some drugs through uh, Corn Island, and then he was going to send it in in his uh, uh, refrigerated uh, cargo ships to us. We landed in Colombia, and everything was fine. Then all of a sudden, as we loaded up the cocaine, we spent overnight uh, tied up to a tree at night, and we got on the airplane about half an hour afterwards. We lost contact with Columbia because we lost both alternators. And eventually we're over uh, the country of Panama, about 5,000 feet when both engines just went off and we crash landed. And it was a miracle that we even lived because we were convinced that there was no way. The airplane had 150 kilos of cocaine. It had two tanks of ether. Uh, and, and then he had a bladder full of gas because when the alternators went out, we could not get the fuel from the inside bladder out to the wing tanks. And uh, we jumped from the airplane and then uh, the a military officer came 
And I took out $300 and I gave it to him. And I said, look, we were looking for uh, uh, cattle ranches and we had a problem with the airplane and we crash landed. But all I need to do is if you can take me to a hotel and uh, here, take my passports, sign them. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to send someone. I'll have someone come and fix the airplane. He uh, took me to a private office and split us apart. And they came in there and it was the head of the DEA, the general consul of Panama, and the head of the G2, which was the intelligence division for Noriega. They lined up all the cocaine in, in a table. They took pictures of us. When I got to Miami, I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America and given the highest bond ever in the history of America, $7 million. I was just 23 years old. And you're listening to George Valdez's story. He had lots of cars. That didn't do it for him. He had lots of women. That didn't do it for him either. He couldn't understand why. He knew one thing. He'd look in the mirror, and as he said, I did not like what I'd see. Then came the plane crash. Then came the life crash. And then Miami and a $7 million bond, the largest ever. And a guy in his early 20s looking at a very new life. When we come back, more of George Valdez's story. And he's the author of Narco Mindset, the life principles that a cocaine drug lord learned on his journey to find meaning in his life. Go to Amazon.com and pick this book up. More of George's life story, George Valdez, here on Our American Stories. we continue with the final installment of George Valdez's story, and again, as the author of Narco Mindset. And when we left off, George and his crew survived a plane crash in the jungle while smuggling a large amount of cocaine. We continue with his story. You know, I hired the best lawyers that money could buy. I hired every name uh, lawyer that you can ever imagine in America. I spent a million dollars at that time. Went to trial. I knew, convinced that there was no way that they would convict me. But uh, they ended up bringing the captain of the Bolivian Air Force and they charged him with selling me the cocaine. And then the guy gets found innocent. And all of a sudden he gets found innocent. I get found guilty. I'm like, I start screaming, go, if that SOB didn't sell anything, what the hell did I buy? But anyway, it did not matter. I was sentenced to 15 years in jail for conspiracy, which was the most that you could give to anyone because they didn't have a wiretap. They didn't even have the cocaine. The cocaine disappeared the same day. Noriega sold that quickly. I go off to prison, and, you know, people think that prison will change you. Prison doesn't change people. I went up to prison, and I was the same guy I always was. When I got out, after five years in change, uh, I went back to the same thing. And really, I look back now, there was no need for it. I was a multimillionaire. I couldn't spend the money that I had. But it was this thing that they thought they had beat me, but I'm going to beat them in the end. And I went back to the same thing, but... Something very dynamic started to happen right now. And what happened was my mother found out for the first time that I was a drug dealer. All alone before that, all she thought I was an international businessman because I had a lot of business. When she found out, it destroyed her. It destroyed her to a manner that till this day, and now this was in 1979, I just, it is the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life, seeing my mother walk into the courtroom and hearing that her baby kid 
was charged with being this monster, being this the most powerful man in America, you know, heading the largest drug conspiracy in the world. Uh, Justice Berger, Supreme Court, said that in that court's opinion, Doctor um, Mr. Valdez is a financial genius. And my mother is just, no, that's just my son. There's no way he could have done that. And she came to see me, and I never lied to my mother ever, and I told her. And I said, Mom, but you know I wasn't doing anything wrong. This is, we're the Kennedys of the 21st century. She wouldn't buy none of it. She said, son, you destroyed us. But here's the interesting thing about my mom, and this is a message that I tell to a lot of parents that suddenly find their children making horrible choices in life. My mother not one single time would take a dollar from me. My mother not one single time stopped telling me that what I was doing didn't please God and that I had destroyed them. But in the same breath, my mother would say, well, what do you want for dinner tonight, son? Because she let me know that, yeah, I could become a monster. I could become whatever. But in her eyes, her God was bigger than anything. And in her eyes, her God would change her child. And I belonged in her house, even though she was going to condemn all my actions and whatever I did. And you know, at that time to me, it was very confusing. But 40 years later, I see the genius of it because I see we get mad at our kids and we kick them out of the house and we find our children making horrible choices and we call it tough love and it really doesn't work. It doesn't work by no means. We got to be tough, but we got to love. So it's not tough love, it's tough, but love. And that's how I raised my children. But, you know, and, and it went like that and there was not one chance that my mother would not ever stop telling me that. And she's like, son, if I get killed... You kill me because what you do doesn't please God. And I'm like, Mom, what God? God ain't real. Where was God when we came from Cuba and we were going hungry every day? Where was God when you came from Cuba and laid in a hospital dying of throat cancer? Where was God, Mom? And I just left and I went back to my operations. And two months later, I was already separated from my, from my second wife. One night, I'm partying in my house with some movie stars, and all of a sudden, the head of the uh, security at the gate says, George, your ex-wife just dropped your daughter. And I'm like, my daughter? I said, just bring her over. So she comes over. I tell the, the babysitter that lived with us, I said, go ahead and put her to bed and make sure she doesn't get out of her room, and in the morning, I'll have breakfast with her. And I went back to my party. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Two or three hours later, I hear this knock on my door. Said, Daddy, it's Crystal. And for the first time in my life, I began to feel filthy. I began to feel dirty. And it was the feeling, the more she knocked, it was almost the feeling that you see your baby uh, child going to drown on a boat and you're reaching out and touch their fingertips and you just can't grab a hold of their hands. And I couldn't open the door because if I opened the door, I would contaminate her. I told the woman to get out of my room. They went to get out the door. I said, No, out the window. And when they got out, I went into the shower. He's a man that never feared anything in his life. All of a sudden, in the shower, I started to shake and I started to tremble. I started to try to scrub the filth off of me, not wondering what the hell was going on in my life. How, how have I allowed my life to get to this point? I went underneath my sheets and I began to shake and shimmer. And when I calmed down and I was dehydrated, I went to get water and I saw my baby girl in the floor crying. And I said to myself, this will stop today. I didn't know, I said, my life will change today. And I didn't know what change meant. You know, and this is what I tell people, when you know you gotta make a change in your life, don't worry about what that means. Just know this. For me, it was simple. If I'm going north, I'm gonna start going south. If I'm going east, I'm gonna start going west. 
And I called my mother in the middle of the night, and I said, Mom, I'm done. And she knew what I meant. And she's like, God has answered my prayer. And I'm like, God, Mom, God has nothing to do with this. This is crystal. This has nothing to do with God. Or so I thought. And then I called, in the morning, I called the head of the cartel, and I said, I'm finished. Now, imagine the desperation in my life at this point that I knew that most likely I'd be killed within a month. And I just moved off to my ranch. I sold my house in Miami, and, uh, and I went to live in my ranch, and Wait till someone came around. And the truth of the matter was that I just really didn't even care. Didn't care anymore because my desperation was so much that my life just had to find some type of a change. Anyways, I hired this guy to teach me karate. And I remember the first day that he comes to teach me karate. He says, uh, I'm going to teach you about the sword. And I'm like, man, I've done karate a lot when I was younger. And I'm like, man, I'm really smart. I can't believe I hired this guy. Uh, I love weapons. He's not going to waste his time throwing kicks. We're going to get into weapons right away. All of a sudden, he turns around, and he has a Bible. And I'm like, I look at him, and I'm like, sir, first and foremost, I need to tell you two things. Number one, I don't believe in that book. Number two, I don't believe in God. And number three, I'm paying you a lot of money to teach me karate, so tomorrow would you please leave that sword home and bring the real sword? He got up into my face where I could smell his breath. It was the first man that had done that. And I said, uh, well, here's a seven-degree black belt. He's going to start whooping Jesus into me, and I'm going to be paying for it. So I'm like, hey, dude, dude, don't get excited. Let's just go ahead and wait and go waste your time. And I said, when the steam room heats up, you can talk to me, read to me, do whatever you want. He says, deal. And he read to me for almost three years. And people say, what did he say that made you come around? I said, really, honestly? Absolutely nothing, because I was just getting over the butt whooping he had given me to even think about what the hell he was talking about. But it was everything that I saw. You see, I saw a man that lived in a very little world. I saw a man that had a 14, 1500 square foot house, and he was so happy. And I lived in this $15,000 square foot mansion. I was miserable. I wanted to find out about this God that I didn't know nothing about. And I started to study theology, and I, started, I taught myself Greek. I ended up getting another bachelor's in prison, and five, almost five years later, I had started a master's from Wheaton College, graduated. Uh, I mean, when, when I was released, I went to Wheaton College and, uh, and finished my master's, became an adjunct faculty there, met the most amazing woman on God's earth, my wife, of 25 years now. Then from Wheaton College, I decided that I wanted to keep going, and I wanted to be the best theologian in the world. And I applied to Loyola, and I was accepted, and I got a Ph.D. in early Christianity and New, and New Testament and ethics. And I became one of five Hispanics in America with a Ph.D. in Bible. You know, I, I'm here to tell the world, listen, the only thing our children need, the only thing our children truly want is our presence. It costs nothing. But we keep, we keep and we fall into this horrific cycle of destruction and, and, you know, it's like the old saying, Americans are so amazing about sacrificing their health to create wealth. And then they spend their wealth trying to get their health back. And we abandon our family, we abandon our homes, we abandon our wives. And at the end of the day, it doesn't bring us a bit of joy. We're just as miserable as we ever were. Because there's a hunger within us, inside of us, that to me cannot only, only be filled with the love of God and whatever God might be to anyone. I, I talk to people all over the world. I don't care what anybody is. I don't care if they're Jewish, I don't care if they're Muslim, I don't care if they're Christian or atheist. I don't care if they're straight or gay. All I care to tell people is, listen, I just want to tell you a story about me. 
My story, not for you, not for anyone, my story. My life drastically changed when I fell in love with a Jewish carpenter. So my story is about nothing but falling in love and the fact that there is redemption, that there is hope in this world. And we don't have to sell to that message that, oh, I was a twice convicted drug dealer. Who's going to hire you? We're not defined by our failures. We're defined by how we get up from our failures. We're not defined by how much wealth we achieve. I think that we're defined by how many lives we impact. At the end of the day, what I tell people is when the pages of history are written, will history ever remember your name? And if we care that history will remember our name, history will only remember our name so we've impacted the life of somebody else. Not because we have achieved great wealth, not because we're very rich, not because we have mansions and, and homes and uh, vacation homes and three and four cars. Nah. If all we do is impact the life of our children so that they become decent human beings that believe in integrity, believe in the word, and above all, love others, if I can do that, I've changed the world. And so can anyone listening today. God bless. And you've been listening to George Valdez. George's book is Narco Mindset, The Life Principles That a Cocaine Drug Lord Learned on His Journey to Find Meaning in His Life. And my goodness, his mom and his daughter were the catalyst for an abrupt change. What you do doesn't please God, the mom would always say, but she kept loving him. George Valdez's story here on Our American Stories.